The old pilot's plain tales. Higher, faster. It was the unofficial name of the NASA project, but it undoubtedly encapsulated the ultimate aim of the pilots involved with the early X-planes. They were the pioneers who trod the territory beyond the sound barrier, a place no man had ever been before and which had killed many who attempted the journey. It started with the Bell X-1, the design of which was actually conceived in Britain only a year after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. In particular, the Miles Aircraft M52 concept of a variable incidence tailplane was incorporated into Bell's aircraft, which had been battling with the problem of supersonic pitch control. The rocket-powered winged bullet first flew only 42 years after man's first powered flight, an achievement that still astounds me. To think that a toddler around Kitty Hawk, who saw one of the Wright brothers' first flights, could have heard the world's first man-made sonic boom before they reached the ripe old age of 50, it's a true testament to the ability of America's finest minds and the bravery of their greatest pilots. The X-1, though, was only the start of a series of remarkable experimental X-planes, and they continue to astound the world to this day with their blended bodies, hypersonic scramjets, or active aeroelastic wings. In this tale, I want to tell you about only one, an aircraft that came about halfway through the list, but achieved records that no other X-series aircraft has bettered. Indeed, no aircraft of any name, designation, design, manufacture, technology, or from any country has even come close to. Over the following 55 years, after it took its test pilot, William Knight, to the highest speed ever recorded by a piloted, powered aircraft. Knight had bettered Wright's maximum flying speed of 30 miles an hour by a margin of 4,490 miles an hour, a 150 times improvement. So remarkable was the performance of this aircraft that of the 12 pilots qualified to fly it, Eight met the criteria needed to become astronauts. Whilst the military pilots gained their astronaut wings immediately, the civilian test pilots had to wait a mere 35 years after the last flight of their aircraft before someone got around to awarding them the NASA equivalent. Early X-planes were all about penetrating the previously impenetrable sound barrier, the subject of a previous tale. After Chuck took his glamorous Glenis all the way, a second generation of the X-1 was designed to achieve speeds double the speed of sound and altitudes in excess of 90,000 feet. Despite the success of the first X-1, future versions were troubled by a series of explosions. An explosion in the X-1A ruptured the X-plane's liquid oxygen tank and the aircraft had to be jettisoned. 
the X1-2 and the X1-3 were both lost to explosions during refueling. In August 1953, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Kendall, otherwise known as Pete Everest, was carried to altitude attached to the belly of the mothership Boeing Superfortress to fly the X-1D under power for the first time when he noticed that the X-1's nitrogen pressure was dropping. The nitrogen was used to push the mix of ethyl alcohol and liquid oxygen fuel into the XLR-11 rocket engine built by Reaction Motors Incorporated and affectionately known as Black Betsy, although many preferred to call it the Belching Black Bastard. Without sufficient nitrogen pressure, the flight was cancelled and Pete tried to jettison the rocket fuel so that a safe landing could be made. There was an internal explosion in the back of the X-1, and fearing for the safety of the mothership and its crew, Everest abandoned the machine, clambering back up into the bomber. The test aircraft was jettisoned, and it fell into the desert below, exploding on impact. The investigation discovered that the leather gaskets used in the fuel lines and tanks a material which truly brings to mind the era of technology we're recalling, had been treated with TCP, a chemical which could ignite liquid oxygen. The gaskets were replaced, but several aircraft had been lost, a pilot injured, and two lives forfeit. The X-2 was designed to take the project forward improving on the original straight, thin-wing layout of the X-1s by employing swept wings, more advanced materials and controls which would give it improved performance. Twice, X-1 aircraft had succumbed to inertia cross-coupling which came close to disaster and would nearly kill Chuck Yeager. He had just reached Mach 2.44 at over 74,000 feet when the X-1A began to roll left. He countered with right aileron and rudder and was now rolling right when the little machine snapped out of control, tumbling end over end. The violence of the manoeuvre smashed Jaeger's head against the cockpit and he was knocked unconscious. The X-1 fell 50,000 feet towards the desert below before he came to, groggy and disorientated, but awake enough to effect a safe landing back at Edwards. This form of divergence was known about in theory, but Jaeger was the first to ever encounter it in flight. The Bell X-2 would power itself into the record books, eventually reaching a height of over 126,000 feet and a speed of Mach 3.2, over 2,000 miles an hour. Apart from the change in aerodynamic design, the X-2 pioneered throttleable rocket motors, something that was developed from the German ME-163 Comet technology, and was constructed from stainless steel and a copper-nickel alloy. It achieved some incredible milestones, but at a terrible cost. Following a test glide flight, Bell test pilot Skip Ziegler 
was killed along with Frank Walco, a member of the B-50 mothership crew, during a captive test when the X-2's liquid oxygen system exploded. The X-plane was jettisoned and lost into Lake Ontario, whilst the B-50 struggled on to an emergency landing. It never flew again. When it did fly, the X-2 lived up to its potential, but not without concerns. Pete Everest reported that the flight controls weren't sufficiently effective, giving only marginal control. The supersonic movement of the centre of pressure was a problem, as was the lack of rigidity of the fin, and studies indicated that stability would be a problem as the aircraft approached Mach 3. Mel Apt was at the controls for the first time when the X-2 exceeded Mach 3. He had followed the brief flight path flawlessly, but while still above Mach 3, he attempted to turn his aircraft and lost control. Inertia cross-coupling had again caused a test aircraft to tumble end over end, and Apt found himself trying to cope with three sequential problems, control coupling, inertia roll coupling, and supersonic spinning. His attempts to recover from the spin were hampered by the rudder lock which was still engaged. Apt tried to abandon the aircraft by firing the ejection capsule, which was only equipped with a small stabilising drogue, but he failed to climb out and use his personal parachute before he hit the ground. Apt had taken his machine to a speed where its stability had become severely compromised, and many of his supervisors blamed themselves for not firmly laying down a specific maximum speed for the test flight that might have kept him safe. The capability of the ejection capsule was also criticised, some declaring it woefully inadequate. Another NACA research pilot, Scott Crossfield, bluntly described it as a way to commit suicide to keep from getting killed. This tragic crash terminated the programme before NACA could commence detailed flight research with the aircraft. The search for answers to many of the riddles of high Mach flight had to be postponed until the arrival, three years later, of the most advanced of all the experimental rocket aircraft, the North American X-15. The X-15 was a hypersonic rocket-powered aircraft that is one capable of exceeding Mach 5 and ranked supreme amongst piloted rocket-powered aircraft becoming the world's first operational space plane. Remarkably, it was based on a concept study from a German artillery officer who fought in both world wars and was a leader of the Nazi V-2 rocket program and other projects at Pienemund, Walter Dornberger. Proposals for the airframe were published in 1954 and the engine in 1955, and Scott Crossfield first took it airborne in the summer of 1959. Like previous X-planes, it was designed to be dropped from a mothership, in this case from one of two B-52 strata fortresses, named the High and Mighty One and Balls 8. 
The X-15's design was radical, as one might expect from a hypersonic-capable aircraft. The fuselage was a long cylinder with wedge-shaped fairings either side that flattened its appearance, from which a pair of stubby, trapezoidal wings protruded about two-thirds back. The fairings housed control cables, hydraulic lines, fuel plumbing and wiring that couldn't be squeezed into the fuselage since it was crammed with two huge tanks of propellant. The side fairings provided well over 50% of the total lift, particularly at supersonic speeds, with the wings doing most of their work during launch and landing. The tail section was a cruciform of four surfaces, the vertical tail sections extended above and below the fuselage and were both huge. They amounted to 60% of the wing area, and unusually, they were formed into fat wedge shapes, which gave them good stability in the hypersonic speed range, but enormous amounts of drag at lower speeds. In addition, side panels could be extended to aid stability and help control speed. The upper vertical tail also comprised an all-moving rudder, and since the aircraft landed on short skids, the lower one was jettisoned for landing, coming down on a small parachute. Either side were all-moving horizontal stabilisers that could move in unison to pitch and twist individually to roll the aircraft. Like systems developed for some of the X-1 aircraft, the X-15 needed reaction controls to keep it correctly orientated when there was insufficient air for the aerodynamic controls to operate. The reaction jets harnessed an ancient form of energy, steam. Superheated steam was created from the decomposition of hydrogen peroxide. This required a complicated system of control for the pilot, giving him three different joysticks to use. The centre stick was a normal one, used when there was sufficient air for the machine to fly conventionally. The left stick operated the reaction control system in manual, as opposed to when the automatic inputs were used. And the right-hand stick was used when under high G-loads. One of the greatest goals of the project was to discover how to transition from aerodynamic to reaction control and back again in this vast unexplored flight regime. There was an alternative setup which combined and simplified all three sticks into one. Other features included heated windshields to prevent icing and a forward-facing headrest for periods of intense deceleration. The ejection seats were never used through the programme, which was remarkably safe considering the longevity of it, the novel design and exotic materials used, and, of course, the hostile environment the X-15 was regularly taken into. In theory, it could be used up to Mach 4, 2,800 miles an hour and 120,000 feet. After ejection, the seat was designed to deploy fins which would stabilise it until it had fallen to a safe speed and altitude when the main parachute could be used. To keep the pilot alive during this fall, 
They wore specially designed and developed spacesuits that could be pressurized with nitrogen whilst the pilot was fed a separate supply of oxygen. By now, the United States had eight years of experience developing rocket engines and Reaction Motors Incorporated were given the task of developing the XLR-99 engine capable of producing 600,000 horsepower, around 450,000 kilowatts of thrust. Their previous engines had safely conducted some 384 flights, so they were well-placed to develop a rocket that would consume fuel at the rate of 13,000 pounds, or 6,000 kilograms a minute. At full power, the XLR-99 would accelerate the X-15 at 4G, adding 90 miles an hour every second. To cope with the environment the X-15 was expected to operate in, its manufacturer, North American, had to use exotic materials such as titanium and a nickel-chrome alloy known as Inconel X, which could withstand much greater temperatures but had a big weight penalty. This led to them developing machining and production techniques that would become standard throughout the aerospace industry. The cabin was made from an aluminium shell and isolated from the outer structure to keep it from melting. In stages, the test pilots took the X-15 into places where vital data could be recorded. The aircraft returned benchmark hypersonic data for aircraft performance, stability and control, materials, shock interaction, hypersonic turbulent boundary layer, skin friction, reaction control jet function, aerodynamic heating and heat transfer. Experiments ranging from astronomy to micrometeorite collection were conducted and they also included tests of horizon definition and proposed insulation that bore fruit in the navigation equipment and thermal protection used on Saturn launch vehicles in the Apollo program, which dispatched 12 astronauts to the moon and back. Among the 12 was Neil Armstrong, the first human to step on the moon's surface, and a former X-15 pilot who also flew many other research aircraft at the Flight Research Center. Doctors learned that the heart rates of X-15 pilots ranged from 145 to 185 beats per minute during flight. This greatly exceeded the normal 70 to 80 beats per minute experienced on test missions for other aircraft. The know-how gained by the many teams in government and industry were a national asset and ensured the success of the space programs. Sadly, this didn't all occur without loss. In 1967, during re-entry, Major Michael Adams X-15-3 yawed off heading by about 15 degrees, causing the airframe to enter a Mach 5 hypersonic spin, oscillating violently as the aerodynamic forces increased. He experienced more than 15 G positive and negative, and at least 8 G laterally, which exceeded the design strength of the aircraft, and it broke up at 60,000 feet, 
scattering wreckage across 50 square miles, 130 square kilometers. Major Adams was killed and posthumously awarded Air Force astronaut wings for his final flight, which had reached an altitude of 50.4 miles, 81.1 kilometers. And in 1991, his name was added to the astronaut memorial. In 2004, a monument was erected at the very spot where the cockpit of his aircraft came to rest, near Johannesburg in California. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And if you'd like to listen to Plane Tales on its own, then it's available on your podcaster of choice. And if you can help us out by leaving a nice review, that would be much appreciated. Many thanks, and thanks for listening. <laughs>